I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The statewide virtual charter school board has given its approval for the first religious charter school in the U.S. The decision allows for the creation of the St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic Charter School. Opponents expect several constitutional challenges, and now Attorney General Gettner Drummond says the vote itself was illegal as the deciding vote came from a member who had just been appointed on Friday by House Speaker Charles McCall. Neva, where does this stand now? <laughs> well, it, th- more questions than answers, which seems <laughs> to be the way we describe much of this uh, uh, conversation about education in Oklahoma. But uh, it, to unpack some of it, like you said, Michael, I mean, you have this instance where everyone knew the board was coming together to meet, to address this application, and to take a vote. And it had been on the table since April. And then with uh, less than a half an hour before this special board meeting on Monday, you had the uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Nikki Batt who emailed the board chair and the executive director saying that uh, the seat had that had been vacated and had been vacated very abruptly on on just the preceding Friday uh, and an appointment made by the uh, by Speaker McCall to fill the vacancy that uh, that that there was a question now that this person the new, new, ostensibly new member uh, was ineligible and his vote was invalid. So the, the uh, chairman and the executive director said they did not get the information, you know, in a timely manner and did not know that uh, when the meeting was occurring and the vote was taking place. So it throws this uh, into a somewhat of a, a legal, legal limbo mm-hmm. because if, in fact, that new person had not voted, it would have been a two-to-two two two tie and, and basically would not have, uh, the application would not have been approved. So there's a lot of questions lingering on that. Obviously, as we've talked about all along, this whole, this whole concept of the Catholic Charter School and the legality of it, uh, the expectation that it is going to be this test case that ultimately goes to the United States Supreme Court. This is going to be a conversation not only with people weighing in in Oklahoma uh, over the next many months, but certainly a national conversation that seems to be picking up a lot of traction and uh, a lot of visibility and people paying attention to what's happening on this particular instance with this particular uh, application. Ryan. Well, it's not a matter of uh, which legal issues are going to be resolved here. It's the matter of timing. And, and I think that with the addition of the new board member uh, added uh, just kind of at the last minute mm-hmm. uh, by the speaker, and, and it's his right to make that appointment, but the law says that those appointments take effect on November 1. And so if there's an invalid appointment, you know, the, the vote itself could be invalid. And not just the vote, but this board member participated uh, mm-hmm. in the conversation and the deliberation of whether or not to approve this uh, religious charter school that would be funded with public dollars. 
Um, so they they had an opportunity to speak at a meeting that general public had no opportunity to speak at least at that length and in that manner. Uh, and so you had a position of power and a position that wielded a vote that are you know many uh, would regard as invalid. And I know that the the letter came from the attorney general. They said about thirty minutes before the board meeting, but at the board meeting itself, the uh, uh, Robert Franklin, who is the board chairman. Even he, I don't know if he had knowledge of this email at that time or not, but he uh, asked Brian Bobek, the new member, to step aside and to abstain from the vote. He said, whatever uh, the outcome of today's votes are, you know, there should not be uh, any uh, criticism that this was politically motivated. He said, quote, in an effort to maintain transparency of today's weighty board vote and to avoid and in an effort to avoid the perception and appearance of political manipulation related specifically to you. Uh, you should abstain from the vote. He did not do that and, and instead actively engaged in the deliberation and voted. So that legal issue, I think, is probably going to be the one that's resolved mm-hmm. first. The second uh, round of legal issues are, are constitutional issues. Um, and I know for a fact that organizations and attorneys around the state are already talking with prospective plaintiffs. I've visited with prospective plaintiffs myself uh, to potentially challenge this, and, and I'm tar- talking with uh, partner organizations right now as well, I think the legal challenge on this is clear-cut under state law. Uh, I think that it's clear-cut under federal law, but there is some there is some concern that that federal law could be in jeopardy should it reach the United States Supreme Court with the court's current majority. And that's that's where I think that all of this is headed. You know, not the invalidity of this voting member that will be decided, but ultimately there will be a vote. And whether it's yes or no on this, and whether it's valid when when it is valid. Uh, that issue will, or that vote will generate legal issues that drive this all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And you already have the Attorney General, Gettner Drummond, who has weighed in and said that uh, that the decision, uh, the decision to move forward on this issue is is un- is unconstitutional, and that legal action probably would occur at the time a contract is signed, uh, if if in fact it is signed or when. Uh, with the uh, school. So you've got that. And then you the other element to this that I think is uh, interesting and certainly will play into the the math of the board and, and all that takes place when is that you had Robert Franklin announce at the end of that meeting that he would be resigning. And uh, then he, he kind of clarified that by saying that he had no intention to uh, uh, continuous board service when this virtual charter school board goes away uh, under a new law and there's a n- new governing board that will come into play. So what uh, what the impact of that is, he's someone who's been involved for quite some time, knowledgeable, and has been at the helm of, of this board. So there's a, there's a, a lot going on and uh, a lot to continue to unpack in the midst of this larger conversation, which clearly no one uh, disputes the fact that the interest is to push this forward and to get resolution at the U.S. Supreme Court, where many believe uh, there is, uh, based on uh, rulings in the last uh, year or two, would indicate that there may be a Supreme Court predisposed to uh, hear hear this favorably in terms of uh, uh, the attempt to try to move forward and have this first uh, this first charter school, religious charter school, that would be publicly funded. In the and, nation. And in the an nation. article uh, earlier uh, yesterday in the Oklahoman saying that it looks like it's going to cost tw- taxpayers $26 million over five years to fund this Catholic school. Which is, in, which is uh, 
an absurd number when we look at where we need for uh, public education funding. The the biggest fight at the legislative session, we've talked about how this legislative session was myopic and its focus on education, education funding, and education reforms. And I think that even lawmakers that tell you that they made historic investments in education in the state of Oklahoma right now, if you ask them, could we, could we use you know 20 million more or 30 million more? I think the answer is always going to be yes. And if we're diverting that to a religious sectarian school uh, that you know may very well have policies that prevent all Oklahoma students from being eligible to attend there, uh, you know that is an enormous concern that we're diverting that much money. Really, if we're diverting a penny, I think the principle of it is is still enough uh, that we need to keep these private sectarian religious activities separate from the secular schools where everyone is welcome regardless of their faith or no faith at all. And that's the difference. And if, if the Catholic uh, if the Catholic Church, with its 80-plus billion dollars uh, in global assets, uh, wants to fund a statewide virtual charter school to help Catholic families in rural Oklahoma have access to a Catholic uh, school education, and they want to use their own money to do it, by all means, anybody tries to stop you, call me up. I'll help you out. Because that's that would be a violation. Mm-hmm. But asking me to pay for it with my tax dollars to fund your faith, that's a patent violation of the state and federal constitution. You know, it's interesting, too, because the leaders in the charter school movement almost across the board nationally and in Oklahoma uh, have come out pretty uh, pretty aggressively, pretty forcefully uh, saying that they don't agree with this. You have the, the founder of the Oklahoma Rural Schools Coalition, who um, uh, she was at the meeting and she spoke and said basically that their organization had grown by 2,000 members uh, just as this issue had come mm. into play with San Isidore. And that puts their membership somewhere around 12,000, I think she said. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a significant movement among charter schools uh, in general to, um, to have concerns or outright opposition to this. And I think that uh, is something that uh, clearly will only continue to grow in the conversation as well. Oklahoma's fiscal year 2024 budget has become law. However, the nearly $13 billion bill went forward without the signature of Governor Stitt. Last week, we were speculating on whether the governor would veto the budget, but Ryan, it looks like he went in the opposite direction. He went in the opposite direction. He, he tried to give himself some political distance from the budget uh, because he did voice concerns about the amount of savings that he uh, asserts were used uh, to, to patch the to make the, this historic budget um, and, and historic in terms of the amount that was appropriated uh, uh, at the end of the at the end of the day. And he, you know, raised some concerns too about one-time appropriations uh, or one-time funding uh, being used for appropriations. Senator Roger Thompson, the chairman of appropriations in the Senate, was very quick to say that uh, he uh, disagreed with the governor's math in terms of where money was coming out of the state's rainy day fund and state savings dollars, and also uh, made assurances that one-time funding uh, were being used for one-time appropriated projects. You know, this wasn't going to be we get a check from the federal government in 2024, and we're going to obligate that all the way out to 2030. Uh, Senator Thompson's made that clear that that is not what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the governor wanted to avoid, uh, he saw a, a pretty unified legislature, a legislature that had been very fractured over the, co- uh, over the course of the legislative session over education issues. Once that resolved itself um, and then the budget came about I think you saw a, a fairly unified legislature even Democrats saying that uh, you know even they were disappointed that 
you know, things like $300 million being diverted into uh, tax, vou- tax credits or vouchers to, to private schools, even some uh, heartburn over that and real concern over that, uh, nevertheless saw some good things in the budget. And so the governor was looking at, if I send these back with a veto, they're going to get overridden. There, there was really, I don't think that there's any speculation about whether he would be overridden. And uh, I think politically it's a smart move to say, to know whenever, uh, know, you know, uh, know when to hold them and know when to fold them. <laughs> uh, so I, I think, you know, know when to veto them and know when to not. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what this calculus came down to. And he really wants to hold on to this, this concept of his of asking the legislature to come back and consider tax cuts, including the grocery sales tax cut. Uh, and that's that's what I don't think that lawmakers are inclined to come into special session. He can call them into special session, but they can also show up and gavel in and gavel out and go mm-hmm. back to their summer vacations and their regular jobs or whatever it is the that they're doing. Co- the entire co- they don't even need everybody there. You don't even, yeah, you, you just need like, you know, some, some leadership and quorum to come in and, and knock that out and you're done. But um, I do think it is interesting that the grocery sales tax cut, which is one of the few tax cuts uh, that we've seen strong bipartisan support for over the last few years is still lingering out there. Um, you know, we've seen in, uh, in the interim tax cuts that have been you know, very partisan uh, and very contentious move much further along than this idea of cutting grocery sales tax. I think that um, probably not in a special session, but I bet the governor uh, and Republicans and some Democrats that are leading on that issue uh, will probably get some movement on that next session, uh, especially walking into an election year. Neva. Well, it will be interesting on that grocery tax question, I think, uh, Ryan, because it, it it's... Uh, what will change next year that would uh, tend to move the needle differently? I mm-hmm. think you have the Senate uh, fairly intractable, certainly Senate leadership and, and pro tem treats specifically, who have said that this is a non-starter. So there'll have to be some big change, I think, in the conversation to kind of put that back front and center, even though there's clearly an appetite to do it in the House, it appears. And certainly the governor has pushed it from day one, even in his state of the state. So um, I, I think that will be something to, um, uh, to take a look at down the road, whether it moves or not, uh, it still will be a discussion point. But I think in terms of what, what's happened now with this, uh, um, I think in the minds of some, an unanticipated move by the governor in not uh, taking his veto pen to the budget, as he's done uh, several times previously, um, just stating his objections, like you say, I think we're in a situation where is there a need to come back uh, and uh, and for what reason? Will there be uh, these other uh, other actions that still could be taken on some bills that were you know left on the table? Uh, will they deal with uh, some of the other uh, things that uh, could be overridden, such as the compact question? But I think in, in the large measure, I mean, what you have with this budget, you're right. The takeaway is that they, they, spent the, they spent the money in a fashion that there were big wins across the board. A lot of folks felt like uh, a lot of the things that had, in some instances, been talked about for a, a number of years were actually finally getting addressed because the dollars were there. And, and the dispute, I think, will always be there with the governor and the legislature on, uh, on uh, how much money is being saved. The governor always pushing for more, not less. But you're right, Ryan. I, I think that uh, uh, the appropriations chairman, Roger Thompson, in the Senate basically you know, took uh, the governor head on and said, look, we did use one-time money for one-time expenditures. So mm-hmm. he really challenged that assertion that the governor made, I think, uh, 
um, with respect to why, in part, he had uh, had objections in his veto message. So this is this appears to be finished. Now the question is, what happens with the remainder of the special session, or are are they basically finished? And I think that will somewhat come with uh, uh, the majority caucuses probably determining among their members uh, what their appetite is to come back and when. Mm-hmm. And you know, we originally talked about June twelfth, which was which is Monday, mm-hmm. and there's been really no conversation that I've heard uh, suggesting that uh, we know for certain that they will be coming back next week. But they have the special through the end of the month month through the end of June. So uh, there's still some time for some action to take place in some fashion. And there are still some things hanging out there. Uh, Okay, Pops Museum funding, uh, I believe, is still, you know, waiting on some sort of legislative action. Uh, There's legislative action to earmark $12.5 million from 781 funding that went to the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse to be actually uh, expended from the 781 fund, which is the, the fund that reflects savings from criminal justice reform measures that uh, were the result of state question 780 that was passed in 2016. Um, and now, the tourism. And then yeah. the tour, and you yeah. got tourism. Uh, you know, there, so there are these things that are hanging out there that were kind of held hostage. Uh, and that wasn't so much between the legislature and the governor, I think, as, as it was between the two appropriations chairs and, <laughs> right. and both chambers. It appeared. And so you, you, you've got those things hanging out there. Uh, does the legislature come back and act on those, send those to the governor before they adjourn and then say, you know, the governor can do whatever they want or hold the special session open until the end of end of the month? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, you know, from what I can tell, uh, you're not going to get one chamber back without the other, because some of these, you know, like uh, I think OK Pops is sitting over in the Senate waiting to be heard in the Senate. Uh, the, the 781 funding bill is sitting over in the House and you've got final action in both chambers. Uh, so, yeah. It would only take the House to show back up to pass the 781 funding. It would only take the Senate to show back up and pass the POPs funding. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where tourism is at right now, but those are, you know, but I don't think that we'll see one chamber come back. Right. They're, they're both exactly. going to come back or nobody comes exactly. back. Exactly, because you have this skirmish between even uh, even the appropriations uh, chair in the House, Kevin Wallace. I mean, basically taking some, you know, some, some direct issue with the fact that the budget deal did encompass some of these bills that are hanging out there. And, and uh, if the Senate wants to, you know, kind of honor the deal, they need to come do their part. Senate's going to contend, you know, House, you need to do your part. So at the end of it, if leadership gets together and says, let's take care of business and, and take care of these votes, it'll happen. But it's going to take that level of, of uh, decision making for it to occur. Governor Sitt says he's going to send Oklahoma National Guard members to the southern U.S. border. Sitt is joining other Republican heads of state in response to a call by Texas governor for troops to protect the border. He is promising to send 100 troops. Neva, do you know when this is going to happen? I haven't I haven't read, seen, or heard uh, much more than just kind of this uh, intent to do it without uh, really very many answers to some of the questions that uh, uh, reporters have posed since uh, since the governor governor made that statement. But you know, let's take uh, let's take into account that this is not a new conversation. I mean, this goes back at least to uh, the summer of 2021 when you had the Arizona governor and the Texas governor basically sending a letter to all of the governors across the nation saying, uh, we are requesting law enforcement support from you to help, uh, uh, to help along the border in our, in our two border states. And at that time, there were six or seven uh, states that, since, that sent uh, 
um, some troops or some some law enforcement personnel of varying fashion uh, to uh, either Texas or Arizona. But you, this is more the kind of the political give and take with the states and the federal government and the Biden administration and the whole issue of immigration, the whole issue of Title 42, the whole issue of all that uh, has been ongoing now for years and years and years. This is not a new um, subject. And so if you have a governor saying, I'm going to send 100 folks down to help you out, that doesn't seem like much more than a good gesture that I want to be supportive and acknowledge that, the, uh, you know, the folks that uh, that Governor Stitt's been very critical of in, in the Biden administration, that they're not doing their job on this question of the securing the border, protecting, you know, protecting citizens and uh, addressing this, you know, ongoing tremendous influx of uh, uh, folks coming across the border. So, uh, you know, in Texas case, I mean, at one point I read a report, and this has been several years ago, that in a seven-year period um, earlier that uh, that Texas had spent, I think it was $3.5 billion uh, of their own resources trying to secure the border and, and address these issues. So it's a huge problem. No one disputes that. People have different ideas about how, how and what should happen and when. But uh, in this instance, I mean, the governor is certainly not going to, I think, get any pushback from the public in terms of uh, weighing into the conversation of wanting to deal with uh, deal with this massive problem at the border, at our southern border. So um, I think the question is, what is he going to do, and and more of the specifics when they're finally determined, and uh, people then can kind of see if it goes beyond just this initial uh, number that he's talking about. Right. Well, and gestures and gimmicks kind of seem to be the name of the game with immigration policy in 2023. Uh, you know, without action by Congress uh, that would you know, do a lot of the things that the Biden administration is asking for, you know, funding increased enforcement, funding opportunities for asylum seekers to be able to uh, communicate their asylum, asylum applications from a safe place that's not necessarily the United States, that doesn't force them to come to the United States to have to do that to begin with. The idea that 100 National Guard troops are going to serve as a deterrent uh, to people that are coming to the United States, many in desperate situations. I mean, we're this isn't you know this isn't the same immigration issue that we had in, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where we saw uh, a lot of um, you know uh, working age men coming from Mexico to the United States, uh, you know, seeking work. I mean, that still happens, but the large influx of folks that we're seeing are largely refugees from authoritarian governments. Uh, and climate change refugees. That's that's really we're we're continuing to see that. Uh, we're I think I read a statistic that said about one percent of the global population uh, is in some sort of state of migration right now, and that's only expected to increase. So this isn't a United States only problem. This is a global problem that we have to deal with. Gestures and gimmicks, walls that aren't going to you know keep anybody out and are going to fall over with high winds. That's not going to that's not going to fix these things either. It's really going to be up to, to Congress to say, you know, how do we come up with a humanitarian way, but a way uh, to, to address people that are seeking asylum, but at the same time, not allow, uh, you, know, you know, waves of, uh, of asylum seekers or immigrants of, of any sort to overwhelm and disrupt, uh, especially, you know, border towns along our southern border. Um, you know, no state should be spending billions of dollars on its own to enforce a federal immigration policy. 
Uh, that that's ridiculous. But we don't get to a point where the federal government's actually doing that unless Congress can act on some real wholesale immigration reform. And that hasn't really happened. Uh, and, and for the most part, you haven't really heard Republicans especially speaking about uh, comprehensive immigration reform uh, that deals with both the humanitarian and logistical issues probably since George W. Bush. I think uh, you know beyond that, what we've seen is uh, an increasing uh, insistence from the right and their political posturing uh, to try to score political points off of immigrants and asylum seekers. Uh, as long as that's the case, we're not ever going to get there. Uh, that, but you know, and I'll say the same on, on, on the left. I mean, the idea that uh, that open borders is is a, is a, a working policy that's not going to work either. Uh, so where where do we get to a point where Congress is appropriating the money and we're investing in the resources that we need uh, so that people? aren't having to you know, fight their way through the Darien jungle and fight smugglers and rapists and uh, everything else on their way to safety for themselves and their families. Um, you know, we've, we've, there's got to be a better way through this, but we can't do it if we're doing it through you know, political press releases. And I, here's, the, here's the point I do agree with you on in terms of policy. It is a national uh, disgrace that we have not had a more concerted effort by this administration to really uh, help address that problem and help focus on that problem. I would disagree, Ryan, that the, that there has not been some significant uh, movement among uh, some Republicans in Congress, in the Senate and in the House, uh, that have been very forceful in leading the charge and trying to lay out the uh, arguments for why there should be some real concrete action. And when you start looking at some of the information that comes out of these border states, I mean, you, you take uh, Arizona, where at one point they had, they, they actually, Arizona and their, you know, their border strike force, as they called it at the time, uh, they intercepted 300 pounds of fentanyl. I mean, that's tens of millions of doses of lethal uh, uh, lethal drugs that uh, would have been on the streets, whether it was in Arizona or surrounding states or all across the country. So the epidemic of the issues of the illegal drugs and weapons and, and cartels and all of the things that, uh, that become big problems in every state ultimately uh, does, does really sound the alarm that we have to get serious about this. And if governors can help elevate that conversation or at least get it back up on the radar in a national uh, sense of, you know, at least in the news, I think that is important and hopefully it goes beyond. While the governor let the budget bill move forward without a signature, he did pull out his veto pen on tribal compacts negotiated by state lawmakers. Stitt says the measures providing one-year extension to tobacco and vehicle registration compacts are an unconstitutional attempt to circumvent his authority. Tribal leaders are asking for the veto to be overridden. Ryan, do you think lawmakers will be able to override it? Well, I think that this is probably one of the uh, the biggest carrots to bring the legislature back next week mm -hmm. um, because the the fact that we were we're going to see an expiration of the existing contracts that uh, will happen during the legislative interim, um, there doesn't really seem to be any movement. I think that the state administration said that they were hoping to have conversations around uh, re renegotiating the compacts, and the the compacts are, and especially in the tobacco side, are extraordinarily complicated, uh, both from a legal standpoint of how we got to the point of uh, needing a compact, so that tribal governments and the state of Oklahoma could efficiently and effectively collect taxes that you know needed to be collected and and not on others. I mean the the Supreme Court made it clear that 
the state cannot impose sales tax on tribal uh, uh, cigarette sales, tobacco sales to tribal members, but that the state can impose it on non-tribal members. Um, and you know, the, these compacts are a way to, it's, it's a policy way of how do we operate within that system. Um, and you know, many of us, if you, you know, think about, you know, some of these legal fixing, legal fictions that exist, right? Before, uh, uh, Amazon was collecting sales tax for us. I remember on my tax return, it would, you know, tell me to, you know, based on X number of purchases <laughs> or whatever, uh, this is my estimated online sales tax, right? Uh, so that's kind of what we see with these, with these compacts. Um, and I think that most people would say that it's time to at least go back and, and review these numbers to, to understand, are they, or do they make sense for, for both parties? They're, the, the state administration, even after his reelection, hasn't sent any indication uh, that they want to sit down and have these negotiations or that they're uh, approaching these negotiations in good faith. And so the state administration seemed to chastise some of the tribal governments for having conversations with the legislature that you know, led to this you know, kind of last minute one year extension. Uh, it was initially proposed as five years, but it was negotiated down to one year in the legislature. Um, he said, you know, we were hoping to talk with you in June or July, whatever it was, but it turns out you've been talking to the legislature. And so does the state administration now use that as an excuse to, to uh, go and say, we're not going to have conversations at all? Um, or do they reach out and begin to try to have an earnest conversations about what those compacts look like? Um, and in particular, there's, there's some question as to how those compacts look like and operate in a post-McGirt world mm-hmm. um, where you know large swaths of the state, you know, we're not even talking about uh, land that's been, you know, Indian country land that's being held in trust. We're talking about recognized reservation land uh, that is much larger and complete than the trust land that existed and defined what these compacts were whenever they were negotiated. So there's a lot to be worked out, but it's going to have to require good faith communication between uh, the the state of Oklahoma and the several tribal governments. Neva. Well, it, it, you're right in terms of the question on the override because both houses had strong veto-proof margins uh, in in on this subject. So do they come back in or do they decide to not do anything and they just bring the subject back up and continue on next session, which is certainly an option. And I think in the, it was interesting in the governor's veto message because you know he said basically that this is not something innocuous. Uh, and he tried to tie the conversation that um, that he warned that some tribal leaders would argue that the compact would cover non, uh, non-tribal non trust lands yeah, under, under McGirt, which opens up a whole nother, you know, a whole nother larger conversation, as you say, Ryan, very complex and something that uh, is going to take a lot of negotiation. So uh, it was interesting that I think initially lawmakers wanted to kind of have that five-year extension because they wanted to push it out past the next election and have time. In the words, I think, of Speaker McCall, one of the comments he made was, give enough time so that we can address and negotiate on these matters uh, before they become lawsuits and mm-hmm. try to and, and try to move that direction, which would be much better. And I think the other skirmish is clearly uh, the governor believes that he's the sole negotiator on these compacts. The lawmakers believe we're part of the equation and we're going to be involved in these negotiations. So there's a lot to sort out as we talk about all of these subjects, it seems like. But this is one that uh, will be front and center 
not only with what's remaining in this special session, but certainly as it moves forward into the next session. As complicated as it all is, Trey Savage at nondoc.com has a a wonderful piece that not only talks about these vetoes, but gives some history as to how we got to this point. And so if you're interested uh, in, in having, you know, your, your brain, you know, kind of. It's a wrap, long article. But it's, it's, it's a really long good. article. Uh, and, <laughs> but very well uh, done. It's, but it's very well done. And, and folks should take a look at that because I, I think that that perspective is, is important in thinking about this policy. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.